there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. All right, Doctor Vitar. Before we get into the uh, the stories, and there's you some really my name, aren't you, Robert? I, I am. I, I like. I don't know what to call you anymore. Uh, uh, just not late for dinner or something. But <laughs> unless you're fasting, That's which the second time in like five minutes, huh? We get. You know, we got a story about fasting tonight. We'll get into intermittent fasting. But right now, actually, you know, I was just checking in with you. You're actually you're speaking more clearly than me tonight. So I should just I leave right now. You and Super Don can take over. Well, I'm actually fasting right now because of the Ramadan, so my blood sugar levels are definitely low right now, so I should be the one who's making the mistake. I, yeah, I had a feeling there'd be something like that, so I, I should have been fasting, and I wasn't. That makes, that makes all the sense in the world. Now, leukemia as a subject, not something that, uh, well, you know, we've, I, I don't know if you and I have talked about it a lot over the years. I think we have once or twice, but there's an article out of Medical Express and it says scientists are revealing a likely cause of childhood leukemia, and it's not what you think. Even though I was like hoping they might mention, uh, you know, they used to call them high tension wires, EM fields. They're finding disruption. Uh, people living close to those things, they have leukemia clusters, for instance. And I'm not saying it's the only thing. And I think somewhere in the article it mentions that. But what was stunning about this, Professor Mel Greaves from the Institute of Cancer Research in London looked at all of the comprehensive body of evidence collected on acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL. And what they found is stunning. Now, they said gene mutations, 1%, genes, 1%. They gave 1% to genes, okay? But the thing about this article, it said, my gosh, we're preventing childhood infections, and that could be the reason that these kids are vulnerable to leukemia. I don't know if you got to read this, but what I'm reading through the lines is, they are in a backdoor way saying maybe this idea of vaccinating for every disease is not the best strategy for a healthy immune system later in life or even in our younger life. Well, I think that's exactly what they're saying, Robert, because one of the one of the interesting things is when they talk about this, Professor Melgrees um, from the Institute of Cancer Research, he says he makes this comment that or they, they conclude that this, uh, that he's making right, that the disease, he disease is caused through this two-step process of genetic mutation and then exposure to infection, and goes on to say that it means that it may be preventable with treatments to stimulate or prime the immune system in its infancy. So from that statement, it seems like they're actually insinuating that we need to vaccinate more. However, hmm. the premise of what they're saying, this two-step process of a genetic mutation and exposure to infection, that I believe is probably sound, but to do that uh, by initiating a treatment to stimulate or prime the immune system in its infancy is completely moronic. It, it, it's completely looking at it backwards. It's that old analogy that I use all the time, one of my favorite ones. Every time I see fire engines, I see fires, therefore I conclude that fire engines induce fires. It, it, it defies logic. That's not how it works. Yes, there's a genetic mutation potentially, and yes, there's an exposure infection potentially. I would change that slightly to a genetic predisposition as opposed to a 
genetic mutation, and I right. have to change it instead of for exposure to infection to exposure to toxicity, and then those two things will create a problem. And if anything, we should support the immune system during its infancy period, and then come up with the results that we want, which is eliminating leukemia and many other chronic diseases. So this professor Greaves says he's he's now investigating whether earlier exposure to what he calls harmless bugs could prevent leukemia in mice. But what you know, how do they define harmless bugs? And of course, do they inject those so-called harmless bugs into somehow now they make them harmful because of everything else that goes in with them? Exactly. And if they were so harmless, why are we inoculating children for these bugs? You know, it's almost like they've got the right words, they've got the right building blocks, but they haven't put those right building blocks together in the right order. So um, a pile of facts makes up science, but uh, facts make up science, okay, just like bricks make up a building. But a pile of bricks makes no more a building than a pile of facts makes up science, or vice versa, I guess I should say it the other way around. Meaning that you can have a bunch of bricks, and you throw the bricks together, that's not making a building. Yes, buildings are made up of bricks, but a pile of bricks is like a building. And that's what they do with science. They take facts, they throw them together, and they say that's science. But that's not science. Those are just facts. Then you have to take the facts and put them together to make science. And this is the fallacy. They've got a bunch of facts here, or close to the facts, and then they're throwing it together and it's calling it science, and it just doesn't work that way. Well, if, if their goal, if you will, is to get people to that building, but the only way they can build it is by injecting the bricks with some toxic poison that they feel like, well, there's harmless stuff in there and we're not going to pay attention to anything else in the syringe. Then, you know, they they try to massage every new discovery into that pattern of behavior. So it's like they do have vaccine horse blinders on in a sense. So if you identify that, my gosh, childhood exposure to these so-called harmless whatever, and that's largely what we would call chicken pox, and measles, and mumps, and rubella, that by and large, when you have a healthy child that's you know in a, living in a clean environment, getting outdoors and being exposed to things, not living in a toxic, polluted terrain with sewage running in the streets, that you encounter these things and you are strengthened because of them. And yet in this context, they go, oh, no, no, no we can't actually let you a- actually be exposed to it. We've got to somehow manipulate and control the way you are and, of course, give it to it in an unnatural way because you normally encounter the world through inhalation and ingestion, not through injection. I completely agree. So Dr. Graves concludes that the disease is caused through a two-factor process of genetic mutation and exposure to infection that means it may be preventable with treatment to stimulate a primed immune system in its infancy. It should say that Dr. Gray's research should conclude that disease is caused through a two-step process of genetic predisposition and exposure to toxicity that may uh, be preventable with treatment to support the immune system during its infancy. That would be a correct statement. Nicely said. Again, we're altering the way, and, and it's like truth and labeling, truth and description. If we look at vaccines, if anybody tells you that a vaccine is supposed to help your immune system, it, it's, it, I call it a bald-faced lie. It is supposed to stimulate artificially the induction of an antibody response, and they rely upon the antibody to protect you, recognizing what we know of immunology, that the antibody is far flung, far afield from the, the primary way your body is protecting itself or your immune system protects itself. That's just one of many things. It's much more complex than that. 
And so if you're willing to sacrifice the vast majority of the immune response in order to gain the, what, the holy grail, the antibody, then, you know, are you being a good doctor at that point or even a detective? I mean, let's say we found the antibody. Hooray. Well, what happened to the rest of the immune system? Well, in the process of getting to the antibody, we destroyed it. Is, does anybody see a problem with this? Yeah. Does anybody, I mean, and if anybody says so, then they say, well, well we're going to Wakefield you. Well, this is a, you know, very, very commonly applied to cancer. They, they talk about all the things that they can do to destroy the cancer cells. And yes, they can. But there's no point in destroying the cancer cells if you kill the patient in the process of doing so. So it's, uh, it seems like it's a modus operandi almost in modern medicine that the end justify any means, regardless of what the consequence is of reaching that milestone. And if your goal is to make a person healthy, then you have to look at the consequences of those actions that you will initiate with, with the thought process that our goal is to make this person healthy. If you're going to poison the person in that process of trying to keep them alive, then you can't say that that's the treatment. Vaccination is a very uh, similar type of concept. You know, I've said this before in public, and Robert, you and I have talked about this on the air, off the air. We're not against vaccinations. We're just against stupidity. So... <laughs> Vaccinated. If we're going to vaccinate like the way that Creator designed our systems, take a child to a party where everybody has has a chicken pox. That's a good way to vaccinate. You expose them. You know, give them a little bit of dirt to eat. Whatever it is, you expose <laughs> them. But you don't suppress their immune immune system with DNA addicts and foreign um, cell lines from other species like ducks and chickens and dogs kidneys and all this other stuff, and then you don't add formaldehyde and nickel and mercury to the component, which all, by the way, suppress the immune system or the immune system, and then use the, uh, under the premise of we need these DNA addicts to, uh, to stimulate the immune system, when in actuality they're suppressing the immune system, and then introduce some type of a virus or bacteria, one of the cases that you're trying to vaccinate from, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And then the worst part is to do it at a point in the development of the infant of the child when the immune system is not even capable of mounting a response in other words the immune system is not functional in a human being till around the age of five six months old that's why we depend upon the mother's milk that's why it's so important to breastfeed at least for the first six months because this is how the natural immunity is passed on from the mother to the child if mm -hmm. you start giving vaccines to a child before the immune system is even capable of mounting an immune response what that's like we, putting a manager put the infant behind a car and have them drive a car. Or, or right, we've got it. We've got a response to that coming through from Super Don. Give a listen. So, Doctor Batar, you're an awesome doc, but you can't fix stupid, and we can't cure dumb. But we sure can point it out. Hopefully, those who are able to see it and go, you know what? I'm not going to listen to those dunderheads anymore, and I'm going to see if I can honor the creator and the creation and really mimic it in that sense. And even to go one step further, Dr. Mitchell, because we exposed our kids through these chickenpox parties, and they got them early, but now we also have access to what's known as homeoprophylaxis, the homeopathic form that signals the body in a metabolic way without harming the body. So if you feel like you need that little edge up, leg up, then you can do it safely. I completely agree, Robert. Anything to naturally 
allow the induction of these pathogens that potentially would not even have that much of a pathogenic uh, response for the immune system intact, but a lot of times the immune system isn't intact. Uh, I think I'm all, I'm all for it. It's a natural way of all right, well, we're going to continue this advanced medicine discussion here with Dr. Rashid Bittar as we do each and every week. The links are up in the show notes at robertscabell.com. You can go to advancedmedicine.com as well and find the archives. Oh, man, there are hundreds of hours. you got a lot of catching up to do if you're new to the show. We'll be right back. The revolution will be broadcast. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. All right, we were talking about the immune system as we like to do here with Dr. Bittar on Advanced Medicine each and every week on the Robert Scott Bell Show. Uh, heard it around the world on uh, GCN or Home and Broadcast Radio Syndication later on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, UK Health Radio. And when we're live uh, doing the YouTube thing, you can watch it there as well. And Dr. Batar is now streaming it out to his fans through Facebook Live, which is cool. And I just wanted to say this, Dr. Batar, I know you'll appreciate this. A quote from somebody named St. George Tucker from 1803. The right of self-defense is the first law of nature. The right of self-defense is the first law of nature. And, you know, this is where I get, and you do too, about parents that are like, I don't know what I can do. They say I have to vaccinate my kid. I'm like, snap out of it or snap into it and, and do your diligence in protecting your baby, your child, because it's the first right that you have, not only self-defense, but the defense of those children who are completely dependent upon you. And you put them in the hands of these doctors that think vaccinating is the way to go you violated their right to self-defense. That's exactly right. This is a gift that the Creator gave to us as parents. Regardless of what your own profession is, you're a parent first and foremost. People say I'm a doctor when I was in the military, I was a soldier, whatever the case is. But, you know, my role in my own world, in my, when I look at myself in the mirror, is as a parent. And our role as parents is to defend our children at all costs. And I think that this is where that... Uh, where we end up making excuses, you know, like, well, daycare won't take them or school won't allow them to come to school and have them vaccinated. I think, Robert, I talked to you about what happened recently with Avi, where they, with the university, saying that uh, because they only gave him an excuse because we couldn't find his medical records from the, the hospital, Ross lost his vaccination records. And, of course, I wasn't going to go get more vaccines done. And so they said that they would only waive him for the MMR vaccine, but the rest of them he would have to have done. And I called the, the North Carolina Public Health Department, and I went off on a voice message, you know, to the doctor that was in charge, which is foolish of me to do. But uh, <laughs> then I realized, why am I even giving them the power of yelling at them? What's the right. point when they can't really do anything? It, 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 you know, they have no power. I was only giving them the power. Are you there, Robert? Yeah, yeah, I'm hearing you. This is a great story. Keep telling it. Well, basically, it was, just, it was foolish the way that um, we as individuals tend to give our power away. I don't know why my Facebook, I'm just getting all this, like, all these comments from Facebook saying that, you know, everything sounds good, but I think it just locked me out. But regardless, um, 
we should never give our power away as individuals. We we need to maintain our autonomy, and we need to re- recognize that by allowing somebody to dictate how we act, we are giving our power away. They can. What, what, that's um, the, the, the phrase. It was the Supreme Court justice that had that quote. Robert, Robert, do you remember we talked about this before? Through um, belligerence, yeah, uh, freedom is only uh, only available to those who are willing to. Uh, be belligerent and fight for freedom and through sustained combat, something to that extent. Yeah, belligerent in the defense of freedom. Because you, if you're just going to lay back and say, give freedom to me, they're going to take it away and laugh at you all day. And uh, you know, this is a message of the li- of lifetimes, honestly, to get here. How many people would rather just sit back and go, all right, whatever, you got it, you got me, we'll do the shots because it's too difficult to say no, you're going to make my life difficult. I'm like, how much more difficult is life when your kid has been injured into the autism spectrum? How much more difficult is it in life when you have a neurological disease because you've been injected with mercury and aluminum and a whole host of other things? Folks' perspective is in order. Of course, they get you duped because then they say, well, none of those things really cause that. That's just Dr. Batar and Robert Scott Bell saying it. No, it's not just us saying it, but even if it were, when you get one person, if I'm the only person saying it, I don't need anybody else to agree with me. I know that it's true, but Dr. Batar, you do as well. And I think this is what it comes down to. It's up to us as individuals, and it's not just for dealing with children. When somebody gets cancer, the tendency is for them to give their power away to their oncologist. But when somebody gets any kind of disease process, they give their power away to whoever they think has a higher authority level. And what we have to remember is that the only authority level that's higher than us is the creator. That's it. There's no other authority. So if you give a banker more privilege over your money, or you give your um, attorney more privilege over your decisions to, you know, which way you're going to go in a legal decision, or if you give more power to your doctor to decide what's best for your health, then you've just violated the sanctity of your own God-given... Your own divinity. And rights and truth. You're giving yep. it away. Don't give your power away. Folks, yeah, like I said, take it back. Stand up for what is right. And you've got to get get right with God. And that's a gut check, too. It's not a, just a gut-brain connection. It's a gut-God connection, folks. You know, whether you're praying, whether you're fasting, whether you're contemplating, whatever you got to do to get there. We're going to do our level best to help you here. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Each and every week, we go advanced medicine with Dr. Rashid Bittar. Check it out. Links are in the notes. The Robert Scott Bell Show. In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Information is so good, it requires no expiration date. The Robert Scott Bell Show. All right, Dr. Rasha Bittar is fasting right now, and he's clear-headed as can be. I'm not, and I'm bumbling through the show. I can barely speak. Uh, fasting has been a, a big topic over the years here. Of course, I learned that it was an important part of my recovery. And, of course, when I had hypoglycemia due primarily to mineral deficiencies like uh, chromium we've talked about, I couldn't go an hour or two without eating. I, my, my blood sugar would drop. I'm like, oh, I got going crazy, right? Now, of course, I, I wake up, go exercise, ride a bike, and halfway through the day, two or three in the afternoon, I'm like, oh, I haven't eaten. I could eat, right? And what does that say? Well, according to this in Tech Times, I, I'm increasing my risk of type 2 diabetes, Dr. Batar, by intermittent fasting. 
I got a theory on this, but I want to hear if you have something to say about it first. Well, I think this comes back to the fixing stupidity part. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that I could say anything else. I mean, you know, I hate to be so crass and so rude about it, but mm-hmm. again, how can, how can they say that intermittent fasting can generate free radical damage? Let me, let me tell you something on the side before I hear your theory, Robert. And sure. I just want to talk to you about what I have observed with fasting, actually looking at blood, okay? I'm not talking about dark field microscopy or under a microscope. I'm just talking about when we do ozone autohemotherapy, we draw blood in patients. You draw out anywhere between 60 to 150 cc's of blood. You then take it through an ozonation process. You take it through the uh, ultraviolet blood irradiation component, and then you infuse it back into the individual. Now, we, I don't know how often we do this in a day. We, you know, if we had, we, we probably do this 15 to 25 times a day, every day in a clinic on different patients. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that there are two times when we draw blood on an individual, and specifically I'm talking about myself. I don't know how many ozone treatments I've had done myself, but I can tell you there are only two times when my blood is just perfect red. Like you talk about the brightest, most beautiful red you can imagine. There's only two times. If I've been fasting, or if I've just finished running, sprinting, that's mm-hmm. the time my blood is perfectly red. The rest of the time, it can you know, if I've if I've been sick, or if I haven't slept, if I haven't been, uh, if I've eaten just recently eaten, the blood is dark. And with cancer patients, sometimes the blood is so dark it's almost maroonish, blackish. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's like the deep, deep, deep maroon bordering on black. It's that dirty. But the cleanest blood is always after sustained aerobic activity and or fasting. So free radical damage, Yeah, I, I guess in a way, if you think about it, though, oxygen is a dual-edged, yeah, it's, it's one of those, it's, got, it's a double-edged sword, right? You right. need oxygen to survive, but oxygen is also responsible for uh, for oxygen, for, for uh, oxidative injury. Right. So from that standpoint, maybe, yes, you could extrapolate it that, yes, it is going to cause oxidation, but oxidation necessarily... Uh, uncontrolled oxidation is is bad, but oxidation in a controlled fashion, for example, what we do with blood, we're ozonating it, we're oxidizing it, but we're oxidizing it so it actually creates a natural method of eliminating virus, bacteria, guy, et cetera, et cetera, being addicts, all these different things. So not tell me what your theory is on the uh, on the on this fact. Sure. And as I'm reading this, this doesn't seem like a long-term study. They're still like, they're getting preliminary data from a short burst study. So if, if you look at someone that's to- toxic and overweight, right, obesity, maybe diabetic, borderline, whatever, and you simply say, well, don't eat occasionally, right? And you don't have, you know, a program, a plan in place to, for instance, what we would do, of course, we would support the detoxification system because we know the burden that's going to be on it if you go into a fast, the body is going to start pulling the fat as energy. And, of course, what's stored in the fat of these people who are obese, maybe the rats too, include heavy metals, including toxins. We call them fat-soluble toxins, persistent organic pollutants you've talked about. And so I think in this, in this sense, they, they don't have a strategy. It's just hit and miss. And they could measure the oxidative damage to the pancreas, probably to the liver cells as well, that aren't, they're not engaging in supporting and preparing the body to deal with what is going to be coming out of these fat cells, and it's not not just stored energy. Yeah, this is exactly what they're actually saying, Robert. I'm just reading the article as you were just talking, and you're absolutely right. Here's one of the things. When, when a person is um, 
when, when an individual is obese, uh, their ability or the, their body's retention is greater for toxic substances. This is fat, fat holds onto toxicity, and the more fat you have, the more toxic substances you have in your body. So the persistent organic pollutants, for example, are stored inside fats. Metals, a lot of different metals are actually, in fact, mercury has a propensity for fat tissue. That's one reason you find it within the, um, within the uh, uh, brain, because brain has such a high right. fat content. There's other areas, too, in the pericardium, which also has a higher fat content for insulation and, and such in, in the body. So you end up seeing mercury and, and other metals, not just mercury, but you see persistent organic pollutants, you see many of these toxins actually being harbored within the fat. So if you're fasting and you're now starting to lose body fat, there's, there's a breakdown, there's a, the, what they call the adipolytic factor or the lipolysis factor, the release of fat, then theoretically you would have a release of more toxins in the system. And so that, of course, is going to be oxidative in itself. But I think that their premise is um, somewhat flawed because, like you said, they're not preparing the body correctly. Um, they, and, and you can't just, you can't fast and then when you break your fast, you know, have potato chips or something like that, which right. sometimes I do do. <laughs> but, but that's Organic, right hopefully. You know, home, exactly, or, or, or homemade homemade stuff, you know. Yeah. So regardless, the point being is they're not preparing the body adequately to be able to deal with the fast. But intermittent fasting, uh, it says here, intermittent fasting diet could generate damaging free radicals and then goes on to talk about the stress, as you said, on the pancreas and some of these other yeah. areas. Um, and anything in isolation like that without the proper support it's not smart. It's just like... So, um, so I'm not disputing what their findings in a sense, what they've identified. That's real. But their conclusions, once again, like the dunderheads we talked about with the uh, leukemia cause, like childhood infections, natural infections they should encounter, their, their role and goal from the results is like, oh, well, let's find new ways to vaccinate these kids, to expose them that way, instead of, well, duh, if this is the way nature set it up, let's encourage them to have more of that natural interaction. You're absolutely right. In fact, you know, Robert, to support your point, they actually make a comment here. They said the rat, they did this also in rats, I guess the follow this in the rat study. The rat's body weight and food intake increased within the period of the study. However, the amount of fat tissue in the abdomen increased simultaneously. So this is actually a perfect example that supports your argument because if you are um, obese and you're not nutriently um, sufficient, mm-hmm. then when you start to... When, you, when people go on diet, for example, they actually gain more body fat because, more body fat because the body is seeing a modified starvation and it's now going to preserve the fat and hold yeah. on to the fat and it will spare instead lean body mass. So it'll actually start, you'll start losing a protein and the body will hold on to the fat because it sees the fat as a stored form of energy which it can retain for a longer period. So it's actually trying to survive for a longer period of time, which is why... People that diet end up becoming more and more obese. They have that rebound effect. And this is exactly what they found in the rat study. So this is, again, a perfect example of not supporting the system adequately during a fasting period and and not being um, nutritionally sound. So now the body goes into a starvation mode. So if I call a Ph.D. a higher degree or a medical degree degree there are reasons for that it doesn't mean they're stupid people per se right you can identify stuff you might be able to design studies but they draw the wrong conclusions time and time and time again because they have again pre-programmed if you will pharmaceutical horse blinders so that they can only see something within the realm of what they're supposed to see if you're a hammer everything looks like a nail 
And this is the handicap I call these degrees. They're actual mental handicap when it comes to real healing. Now, Dr. Batar, I don't know how you overcame yours, but you have, and I applaud you for it. But we, you know, again, that's why sometimes it's harder to communicate this stuff to doctors and researchers. Not that they're stupid people. That's not what we're saying, because you've got some level of intelligence. But, you know, I'm trying to parse it, and I'm trying to be nice at the same time, and I'm, I'm failing miserably. No, no, you're, I, I, you're, you're, being, you're being politically correct, but you're also <laughs> making your point very well. So basically, if you'll allow me to summarize, a pile of bricks, I'm sorry, excuse me, a pile of facts makes up no more science than a pile of bricks makes up a building. So yes, a building is made up of bricks, and similarly, science is made up of facts. But you can't just take a bunch of facts and throw them together and call it science, because that would be like taking a bunch of bricks and throwing them together and calling it a building. And that's exactly what you're saying. That's exactly what they've done. Yes, they have found certain facts, but their conclusion, what the conclusion that they've made from those facts is flawed, because they're not looking at putting the facts together to actually build a house. They're just randomly throwing it, creating a pile and that's fine. And that's just not how it works. All right, so let's go real quickly to another article here called The Conversation. It says, we asked five experts, is it okay to give children painkillers? Uh, a pain specialist said yes. A pediatrician said yes. A, a one pharmacist, a female said yes. An anesthesiologist, anesthesiologist, I believe, an anesthetist said yes. But only one person said no, Rebecca Moles, another pharmacist. And she says they're not ideal for children because, well, they haven't tested. And by the way, fevers are okay. Don't freak out about fevers. So one out of five of these experts actually acknowledge that painkillers for children might not be a good idea. Yeah, and I think that that's uh, very sound advice from, from Rebecca. Yeah, she's the five. five uh, so this is five where you get the commercial saying four out of five doctors or experts recommend yeah. painkillers for children. So what do they do? Throw out the one that's smart? To get that, it's like the. Yeah, exactly. It's it's uh, again that distance that individuals sometimes have. But you know, this is a very important component. Again, become responsible for your own knowledge base. Seek out the answers. Try to find out why would this person, this pharmacist uh, Rebecca Moles, go against the other four? Because there's a reason behind it. There's a logic. You know, I sometimes don't care what the answer is. I want to know the rationale that mm-hmm. led to the conclusion that came up with that answer. Because nice. sometimes the rationale will make it, it become self-explanatory. Yes, yes. And, and that is the case here. And that's why, you know, when I say I don't care if four out of five or 99 out of 100 doctors think vaccines are safe and effective. It does. I'm not. I'm not into consensus science. That's science is not about consensus. It's about here are the facts. Let's draw the right conclusion. Let's duplicate that and duplicate it again and again. You go. Oh, well, now we got something. Not because four out of five of these dunderheaded doctors or whatever say, yeah, painkillers just fine for kids, despite the fact that they're very da- dangerous and damaging to the stomach, the digestive tract, uh, the endocrine system, the liver, the kidneys. We can go on and on and on. But that's why we do advanced medicine here with Dr. Rashan Batar. I'd like to have him here two hours a day, six days a week, but he'd never get anything done, so we get him for one hour a week. And it's an awesome hour. Dr. Batar, are you ready to wrap it up with me? I like the consensus science. I like that comment. I like, I, we want to add that to our vocabulary. Okay, we're going to do that and more. Advanced medicine, when we come back from this break, maybe we'll talk exercise again and get happy. Yeah, let's do it. We'll be right back. Great heavens, what kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show.
Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. All right, back at it. Remember the archives for the Robert Scott Bell Show available in many places, including, uh, well, for years, MedicalRewind.com, the place to uh, get all of the archives of Advanced Medicine. Now you can go to AdvancedMedicine.com, and uh, there'll be searchable archives as well there. And there are invitation codes all over the place as well on the website, RobertScottBell.com. You can also go to Dr. Batar, D-R-B-U-T-T-A-R.com. Find out more about what he and his staff and crew are doing to help you, empowering you to get well. And uh, with that, let's let's do a finale on it. You know, there's one thing on exercise might make you happier, but there's a there's an interesting story about suicide clusters, and they're linking it to this overexposure. If there can be an underexposure, I don't know, to Wi-Fi, microwave radiation, technology always bombarding our cells. Now, I'm not going to say that it's the only thing, because there's certainly a lot of reasons people may commit suicide, including the drugs that psychiatrists use, heavy metals like mercury. There are a lot of reasons, but could these intermittent or constant EM field disruptions be a contributing factor, Dr. Batar? Absolutely. That's the fourth toxicity. So when we start to go beyond the first three toxicity, we become a little bit more esoteric, but... Yes, the fourth toxicity, energetics, electromagnetic fields that are generated. Um, some of the electric, depending on whether it's cell resonance frequencies or not, but yes, definitely. When um, You remember the old Nextel phones, Robert, when they would, before they would ring, if you're listening to your radio in your car, you would have distortion on your car radio, and then about three seconds later, the phone would ring. Yes. You knew when, it, it, it was like really weird stuff it would do to your radio, but yeah, it's affecting the body. So we, we are... Uh, receptors. We are receivers, okay? Our bodies are receivers. We're energetic beings, and these various frequencies, if they're not cell resonant, which uh, by cell resonant, I mean if they're not conducive to our frequencies, can have a very significant detrimental effect, and it can be damaging. It can be very damaging. In fact, cell phone, ambient cell phone radiation is very destructive, and that's one of the reasons that the Earth's magnetic grid is being thrown up that's causing the bee populations in four out of five continents to decrease. So if I take a cell phone and I put it to my ear, it takes me 10 seconds and I start getting a headache. So I'm the obnoxious person on the plane that puts his phone on speaker and talks, regardless of whether it's affecting somebody else or, you know, they're bothered by my conversation because I don't want to put the phone up to my ear. I, I can't. Well, yeah, exactly. That sensitivity is not a bad thing. So people that can tolerate it, not always a good thing. Folks, if you can exactly. eat the, the garbage that they serve you at the fast food drive through and not at least have diarrhea, there's a problem in you, not yet. You know, the, the people that actually react to the, their, their bodies are telling them still. So you want to be sensitive to that. And we talk about EM field technologies to protect and also counteract and neutralize some of these things, even homeopathics. And I was thinking, too, in terms of homeopathy, water is that conduit for communication. It's more than just H2O and hydration and things. But it communicates. Our body, 70 or more percent water, depending on certain areas of your body, your blood obviously weigh more than that. Bones even, well, less, but there's still water there. And it's a means of communication. Think about the frequencies and how they interact and alter the programming, if you will, of your own cells, the water in them. So this is, a, this is going to be a much worse problem when 5G comes to the fore. So we have to continue to strategize to protect ourselves in increasingly polluted, geopolluted or electromagnetic polluted environments. Yeah, and it's uh, unfortunately getting worse as opposed to getting better. And there's more and more reliance on technology, and you've got you know Wi-Fi's and cell towers and all these different things going on. But as you said, there are ways of remediating it, and 
we have worked with some of those ways. Robert, you said homeopathic, so they're actually homeopathic that will that will negate the negative effects of some of these electromagnetic frequencies. Yeah, no, I've worked with the remedies that can, they don't stop it from happening because homeopathy in this case is reactionary. You're dealing with the cells that have been injured and we're dealing with the undoing of that. Of course, we can do that homeopathically. Um, there's a, a scientist out of uh, Germany that I recently met through my buddy Paul Bertero, uh, who developed a key technology, QI technology that uses water and, and, and energetic field condu- conducting electrons in the atmosphere right where you are or in your home. And those electrons settle on your skin. And so that the EM fields, instead of penetrating your skin and harming your cells, they interact with the electrons that have settled on you. So it's fascinating, it's simple, but it's, it's a water-based technology that really produces a, a palpable sensitivity when you walk into a room with this thing. Hmm. That would be very interesting to learn a little bit more about that. There are different ways of using mineral-based uh, compounds, yes. uh, volcanic compounds, things that are rich in, um, in minerals that help to ground those individuals. Those also yeah, as always, the minerals are key here as we talk about All right, we're out of time, folks. Another great Advanced Medicine Monday for those listening live, those who are archiving it or listening later. It's just as good as the day it was broadcast. No need for preservatives. All right, Dr. Bittar, we got to go, so it's about time to tell them what they need to know, my friend. The power to heal is unequivocally yours. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Show. 